What is going on, everybody? My name is Anthony Sabatino, the host of the Anthony Sabatino Show. This is episode seven. We have an amazing guest on. We're going to talk a lot about the crypto space and a lot of things associated. Welcome, David. How are you? Uh, doing well, Anthony. How about yourself? I'm doing amazing. Thank you for asking. So I like to always start the show off this way, just so the audience can get some context of basically, you know, who we're talking with, what we're working with here, because especially this space that we're going to talk about today, it's very open-ended. There's a lot of amazing details. So tell everybody, you know, kind of what you do, where you come from, and some of your backstory. Yeah, so uh, I'm uh, from New York, went to school in LA, and then moved out to Hong Kong, and that's where I started my career. I started at a bank out there, UBS, um, and then I moved back to New York, and was working at a big hedge fund, Millennium, uh, and it was during that time that I was exposed to cryptocurrency for the first time, um, and uh, I just... Uh, saw an article about it, I think on Bloomberg in 2011, uh, shared it with a bunch of other people that I was and friends that I was investing with, and then started to get involved in going to uh, Bitcoin and crypto meetups in New York in 2012, 2013. Um, I eventually left the hedge fund in 2014 and set up my first company in the space called Solid X Partners. And the idea was to be a niche investment bank focused entirely on cryptocurrency. Um, that was uh, early 2014. It was a tough time to start because it was a little bit after uh, the Mt. Gox hack, which was uh, one of the more significant events in kind of the crypto history, uh, which I can go into a little bit more. Um, and then in 2017, I went into uh, this guy, Mike Novogratz's family office. Um, he was an investor out of Fortress and Goldman and went in to manage all of his digital assets. Uh, and then I planted the seeds to launch a hedge fund and a company together that became known as Galaxy Digital. Um, we took that public in Canada in 2018, uh, and it's now a four or five billion dollar publicly listed asset management firm in the space. And then uh, late 2019, no, 2020, um, I was exploring uh, moving down to Puerto Rico, and uh, in the process, I reconnected with a couple of guys that I'd known from the hedge fund world and the crypto world, and um, went out and uh, um, launched a crypto fund called Coral Capital. Um, it's a crypto hedge fund and now just launched a venture fund as well. Um, I also advise um, Brock Pierce and his family or business office, Percival, um, uh, who's another just an old friend and a notable figure in the space. And, um, and then I helped another company last year go public in Canada. And it's a company called Immutable Holdings um, as a parent of NFT.com, which will be launched soon. Very interesting. Well, definitely a plethora of... Uh amazing accomplishments so far. So one thing that I thought was really uh, interesting, just based on your backstory alone was, you know, being in New York, I'm in New York right now. It's where I grew up. It's where I am now. Um, and the idea of, you know, crypto meetups and things of that nature, especially in the early stages of when crypto really started becoming a name in everyday society, right? I can imagine the meetups back in the day probably weren't too, you know, popular. Yeah, you nailed it. So I mean, it, it was so funny, like the, some of the earliest crypto meetups, uh, one of my friends who actually I convinced to move to Puerto Rico uh, last year, Jonathan Mohan, um, he started the original Bitcoin NYC group, which was, you know, I think in 2012 and the, you know, less than 100 people and they grew a couple hundred by 2018, uh, no, sorry, by, by 2013, 14, and then by 2018, 19, it was one of the biggest meetup groups in, in the world. Um, and initially it would be 10 to 30 people sitting in a conf small conference room or wherever we could find office space, really just talking about what Bitcoin is and what the potential was and all these different things that it could disrupt and all the things that we're talking about, you know, that we did in the last cycle and in this cycle, um, these are all things and ideas that we had kind of been dreaming up, uh, you know, eight, eight, nine years ago now. And, uh, and then it grew and 
we um, uh, another friend opened up the uh, the Bitcoin Center. Um, he took a big uh, space down in Wall Street and had that as a venue where people could go and actually meet up every day, every week to learn about uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, or you know to buy uh, to buy and sell. And then we also um, had some other friends who set up um, something called Satoshi Square, which was uh, meeting up in Union Square and actually just like trading it from our phones and buying and selling from each other. And, um, you know, it, it was just such a funny period because it looked like, you know, people were doing kind of drug deals because they were handing cash back and forth and then, you know, connecting their phones. Um, and, uh, and then that's why part of the reason why I moved indoors to the Bitcoin Center. But, you know, it was really like a pivotal point in time in the industry because a lot of the people who were involved back then are the ones who've now gone on to be, you know, significant entrepreneurs and investors in the space. I could, I mean, it, to think, you know, the, the value of being that early, you know, and being able to see that involvement is, is probably really amazing. So let's go real basic, right? So a lot of the audience here, you know, love, they're obviously interested in the space. I have a lot of feedback that I get about just real basic knowledge because at, at the macro, right, there's a lot of it that is still to be learned from the general masses of the public, right? So when we look at, you know, what the normal everyday average consumer would want to know about Bitcoin? Like, what would you kind of say to them? Yeah, so I think, you know, I, I spent a lot of time now in, uh, in my career in the industry, just kind of helping, you know, hundreds of companies get started uh, and people get jobs in the space and invest in the space and, you know, from small individual investors to the largest family offices on the planet. And really what I try to do is just understand how people think about money. Um, and so that's something, you know, that I would kind of share with the audience. It's just like, it's really important to understand how we think about money and you know what hangups we have and what our parents did and what we learned in school and you know all where we're from and all that shapes uh, you know our relationship with money a lot. And so you know for me, I, I felt very fortunate that I started my career in Asia. And what I saw was that the average person in Hong Kong, where I was living, thought about money on a daily basis because they thought about the Hong Kong dollar, the Chinese yuan, the U.S. dollar, the British pound. Um, in Asia, it's a very, I think one of the most liquid uh, currency pairs in the world is the Japanese yen and the Australian dollar. So there's a lot of individuals that are trading that currency pair and speculating on it. Now, the average American doesn't have a passport, let alone think about currency, right? Mm -hmm. It's a benefit of being this global reserve currency. There's something, I think the numbers between 150 and 200 million Americans still don't have a passport, meaning they've never left the United States, right? So it's very hard for them to see and understand what it's like to be interacting in different currencies um, and that the fact that, you know, a lot of other currencies exist in different, you know, monetary and economic systems. And when I think about, right, the, what like money and what currency is, when I see, all right, there's a lot of other competing currencies, whichever countries around the world attract more people to use their currency, to buy it, to do business in it, right? That currency generally has more demand. Now, what is it, what's been happening and you know, uh, Bitcoin was born in uh, like kind of as in the aftermath of a great financial crisis in 2007, 2008. And what that kind of was showing was that like, all right, the idea of a currency born from the internet, right, which had a certain um, limited mathematical-based supply, and it wasn't just controlled by a bunch of individuals of any one government pressing a button and saying, okay, you know what, uh, economy's not doing well, we need to print more money, we need to grow the balance sheet, right? And so, you know, it really showed a lot of the flaws that exist within central banks today. Um, and then 
this idea of a potentially better solution. Now, it's important to understand what Bitcoin is and was from the beginning, right? It's an experiment, right? Now, all of money, all currency, all civilizations could be thought of and broken down to be thought of as experiments as well, right? Now, everybody early on, like what I was saying about like, everyone has these different apprehensions that kept people from it, whether they're worried about regulation, they're worried about volatility, about how it's not backed by anything, how governments might shut it down, um, how it's not tangible, how it's too complicated to understand, right? So all of those I look at as features of Bitcoin, right? And different kind of characteristics. But if you think about it as, all right, well, Bitcoin, it's a little bit like a currency. It's a little bit like a store of value, like gold, right? Maybe better. And it's a little bit of an experiment. And so if you think about it in those multiple frames, then you're not gonna, you know, put too much emphasis and say, oh, no, no, there's no way Bitcoin will ever be a currency, right? And so thoughts like that have been what have kind of scared people um, off from it or kept people away from getting involved so far. That makes a lot of sense. And one of the things that I've been widely um, surrounded by has been this push and pull between, you know, can Bitcoin be used like a dollar or is it more of like a store of value like gold, right? Like, can I go to Walmart and buy something? Do you have any, you know, can you speak to that a little bit if, if there's any validity to that? Yeah, I mean, I guess that's that's part of my last point of like, all right, if everyone is saying, oh, well, and particularly people in the US or in developed countries, they're like, oh no, there's no way that Bitcoin will never be a currency, right? And the point is what they're missing is that we're we're fortunate, you know, if you're in the US that everything works. You could take a, a US dollars, you could take a hundred dollar bill and 350 million Americans will do something for you if you give it or give you stuff if you give them that hundred dollar bill. In fact, if you go around the world, right, you have the benefit that you don't need to even change it into other currencies. You could go to different countries in Europe and go to South America and you can hand them a US hundred dollar bill and a lot of the people there will accept it. So maybe there's two or three billion people around the world that will accept the US dollar, okay? If you go to the hundred euro note, right, maybe it's one billion people around the world. If you go to other currencies notes, same thing. It kind of changes who and like, how will accept it. Now, at the same time, in a lot of other countries, right, that have been facing higher inflation or hyperinflation, Bitcoin has been like a savior to them, right? And, you know, there's a situation that came up last year with what, everything that was happening in Afghanistan, that there have been tens of thousands of people, particularly women, who have been like denied access to bank accounts. And what Bitcoin and cryptocurrency enabled for the first time, it enabled them to earn money online, have their own bank account, right, in the form of you know, their crypto wallets. And then when things were, you know, turning very dicey in the country and they needed to flee, right, if they were fortunate enough to, they weren't able to take very much real, like, assets with them, but they were able to take their cryptocurrency, right? And mm -hmm. so that's a really powerful thing that, you know, people who are saying, oh, no, it'll never be like a currency miss out on, right? Now in the U.S., again, to, to elaborate further, like we have Venmo, we have credit cards, we have all these things that just work. And people just trust the banks. They haven't been in a situation where, you know, if you go back just not too many years ago, there, there was a time in Cyprus and Greece where people went to the bank and they tried to withdraw money and the bank all of a sudden said, uh, no, we're, we're shutting down withdrawals. And then actually, you know, we're only going to be able to give you 70 cents or 30 cents on the dollar of what you thought you had in the bank account. Mm. Do you feel like a lot of that comes down to just an extended period of time of everything being so good? And we kind of almost get brainwashed into understanding how good everything is because we don't have any context from something like a Cyprus situation. So we just almost demonize something that could potentially evolve the idea of currency at large. Yeah, I, mean, I think that's a good way to put it is that, look, 
in general, when, when things are good and like, you know, the US still has been one of the best um, kind of examples or circumstances of like economic prosperity in human history, right? And so it, it's like, and the society has done an incredible job of like fostering innovation and entrepreneurship and opportunity. Um, and, you know, not without its flaws, but at the same time, like it, it's worked, right? And so, you know, another just important point to throw in here, like, and I learned this lesson very early on in my career, that optimism pays better than pessimism, okay? So in the midst of the financial crisis, I, uh, myself and one or two others that were working at the bank at the time were incredibly bearish on the markets. And, um, and it turns out we were right. And this was 2007, 2008, and we turned out to be right. But at the same time, when you're bearish and you have a contrarian position and you're right, you're kind of obnoxious and most people don't want to be around you, right? It doesn't help to be right when everything's falling apart. And the people who ended up doing the best in that period were the ones who, when things were going up, they kept saying, don't worry, everything's fine, keep buying. And when things were falling, they said, don't worry, keep everything's going up, keep buying. And they managed to buy all along the way. And as long as they didn't over leverage themselves, they kept buying during the dip and the whole time. And the markets are significantly higher than they were back then. Um, and so again, the people who followed and were more, more, the most optimistic have done the best. And that same thing is played out in the crypto space. A lot of the people who've been kind of bearish or negative on it or trying to time and um, trade around the markets are the ones who've actually like, you know, may have, if they're fortunate, may have made short-term gains and may have like been able to accumulate. But the people who've really done the best in the space are the ones who've just been incredibly optimistic and have actually been gotten deep and had a long-term mindset and seen the potential of disruption that's come along. And, you know, they've been proven to be right over the last, you know, eight, nine years now. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. I'm, I'm fascinated by, you know, the psychology, right, of people buying when things are low and buying when things are high and also, you know, trusting the influence of someone who's giving them that advice, right? And like, you see that a lot right now in the social media space in general, right, where people say, oh, like, buy this, you know, altcoins and things like that, like things that are just completely, you know, outside of the normal, you know, I just want to say like the base foundational that is, you know, kind of Bitcoin, right? And you see all these other things coming in and you might be able to speak this more intelligently, but, you know, to, in essence, what I'm noticing, right, is people are becoming, I don't want to, I don't want to use the word gullible, but they're, they're becoming very influenced by brand basically, right. Of people who are pushing things. And that's something very, you know, something to be very cognizant about as we continue into this digital landscape. Would you agree? Yeah, completely. And so that's where really like one of the things I try to do is just protect people, you know, help people learn, help people take a kind of, you know, open-minded approach to the space, but not, not just like green-eyed and chasing the latest meme coins and all right. of that. And so, you know, I get asked every single day by, you know, dozens of people of what crypto they should be buying. And, you know, I, I try to steer them away from even asking that and steer them towards like understanding how, you know, this is, there's so much opportunity and, you know, what it takes is actually either coming from what they already know and figuring out how that's going to be disrupted by certain innovation in the crypto space and blockchain technology, or right to get deep and follow their excitement. So to you know to go back to when I first started going to crypto meetups uh, in New York and San Francisco and Miami and LA, like what I was doing was I was seeking out the things that people were geeking out over and excited about. And so that's kind of even now like when people ask me my investment strategy or some of the important things I look out for, like. I try to find things that people are really, really excited about that they'll 
do and build and focus on and, and be committed to, whether the prices are going up or down, like regardless of you know where crypto prices are. And so those are the people that are just gonna, they're passionate and they're excited to build, you know, the things that they feel are important, right? And so, and fortunately that's worked out very well doing that. And, you know, I think when I try to tell people to get in the space, instead of just because they hear, oh, some friend of theirs made a fortune, a meme stock uh, or meme coin or some, or meme stock too. You know, we're seeing the same thing happen in the traditional equity markets. And the term I came up with is, we're seeing what I call the Robin Hoodization of the financial markets. And so what's happening is, more and more the percentage of people that know nothing about financial metrics and the actual prospects of companies but are buying into stocks and into cryptocurrencies just because they like the name of it or they hear their friends are buying it or they see a group like wall street bets or reddit is getting behind it um, or it's low priced right there it's driving a lot of uh kind of faster money than has ever existed in the financial markets and crypto markets um and for periods of time that works when i mean uh, an often like overlooked aspect of all kinds of markets is capital flows. When money is flowing into something, right, prices go up. When money's flowing out, prices go down. Right? It's very simple. And, and so when a bunch of other people get excited about uh, a meme they hear and they start buying it, the prices go up. And so it's important really to not get caught up by that. You know, right now in every cycle, there's kind of different tools that are available. In the last cycle, it was much more Slack. Now it's on Telegram groups and Discord channels. And so today, right, if someone, if a friend of ours came to us and they asked us how to get involved in the space, I tell them they can, within 10 minutes, get into a Discord and be chatting with the founders of any project they want to in the space. And they can get deep and they can contribute ideas. And so it really is what I consider like one of the most meritocratic kind of games or system, like systems the world's ever seen. Yeah. And it's so I love how you put that, right? Because I'm a really, so a lot of a lot of the consulting that I do is is on branding, right? And how how best can we leverage and build a brand? And there's something that it's never been more prevalent, right? In these Discord and Telegram channels, right? People are building brand grouped in community like never before, at least from what I'm noticing, right? Um, and I was wondering if you could speak to, you know, maybe why that's so important. Like, why, why do you feel at its core that the community is what the driving force is outside of maybe just the cash flow? Or do you think maybe that is the singular thing? No, I mean, look, at, at the end of the day, like community matters to the point I made about countries competing, right? By attracting people to use their, their currency. That same thing is playing out now within the crypto communities, right? Of all the major layer one protocols and all the smaller Kind of um, different systems and you know that have been set up and platforms right everyone is competing to attract usage and adoption and community right and mm -hmm. so and there are some aspects that are like almost like religions right when people just believe in something whether it's believing in the importance of it believing in the superiority of the technology all of those things are necessary right to really build up a vibrant and robust community that's going to last through like market cycles yeah, that makes so much sense. And do you feel like that's just going to keep doubling down at this point? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, what's fascinating now is, so there, the, uh, there was this guy, Metacopin, who uh, made headlines for being, uh, the, making the largest NFT purchase. He bought the Beeple every day for $69 million last year. And I heard a podcast he was on, and he made a comment about uh, crypto being the new America. And what he meant by that was that uh, and he was, he's an Indian guy, right? And what he meant was that if you go back to the last couple hundred years, what America was and the idea was that people from all over the world wanted to come here, right, to 
benefit because it was a land of opportunity and freedom and to escape religious and uh, all, all other kinds of like persecution, right? What crypto has enabled is that anybody who wants, anybody can sitting anywhere in the world, as long as they have an internet connection, right, can participate in this new ecosystem. And as much as they put in, as many you know, novel ideas, if they right now there's no advantage or barrier from one person starting a project in any country around the world over another, right? Other than some local taxes and jurisdiction regulations and other things. Yeah, fascinating. And I, I'm, I'm out, you know, I'm really interested to see how it how it grows, right? And how much community continues to play a part in things. Cause you know, you see once you have a a uh, really valid community where people are really attached to whatever that brand and, you know, that ambition that that project, let's say in this case, right, is after, you know, you start seeing things like really interesting collaborations, right, you start seeing where communities merge and build something even bigger. I'm really interested to see kind of where that entire world almost, you know, builds off on its own. I think there's going to be a lot of interesting innovation just in that world itself. Yeah, I'm with you. Yeah. So let's talk. So we touched on a little bit, like for a quick second about, you know, the NFT situation. And obviously it's, you know, it's sitting on the bedrock, right, of crypto. Where would you say, and again, we're, we touched on that too with, with community, right? Because so much of an NFT project is built on in a Discord channel or a Telegram channel where your community is basically, you know, building into the hype of what your project represents. There's, you know, obviously you hope there's utility along with it. Um, there's so much to that. Where do you kind of see the usage of Ethereum particularly as do you do you kind of see it as a long-term play in the nft world um that's a good question i mean i think the same way that bitcoin you know if i think about all like one of the one of the ways that explain just the universe and landscape of crypto assets right there's you know bitcoin and then all these other things that try to compete with bitcoin on you know scalability and speed then there's ethereum and being a much more robust programming language and much more comprehensive uh, with smart contracts and everything and all these other things that they're trying to keep with Ethereum. And then a lot of other, you know, stable coin-like assets and security token uh, assets, which have to do a lot like, you know, normal equities. And so, you know, when I think about, uh, even with all the innovation and experimentation around different things around Bitcoin, Bitcoin has still held its position because it still is, you know, the most gold-like and the most important, longest record, you know, a lot of other key aspects. And most people within the space just want to have more and more Bitcoin, mm -hmm. right? And so with Ethereum, the same kind of thing that even though it's gotten expensive to use and other things, that if I gave people the choice and said, all right, between Ethereum and Solana and Polkadot and Avalanche and Polygon and all these other new platforms, if you had a very valuable NFT and you could only store it on one chain, where would you want to store it? And everybody would still choose Ethereum. And so based on its positioning and track record and where it is so far, it still is most likely that it's in the kind of leading position that it's in today. Um, that being said, you know, there's really important innovation that's happened in a lot of these other layer one protocols. And I think we're going to see more and more um, kind of usage and adoption and new innovative projects being built on those. And so there is some path forward where, you know, we could see um, uh, either a much more like equal playing field between a couple of the bigger layer ones, or, you know, where we eventually see something surpass either. That makes sense. And correct me if I'm wrong here. I, I to, to my knowledge, the 
the biggest issue that a lot of people are voicing, at least with using Ethereum through an NFT space is the idea of the scalability of the transactions. Right. Am I, am I off on that or no? Yeah. I mean, I just, it's because it's also gotten, it's very expensive too. So that, that's an aspect of it just because of the, well, so there's that, there's the scalability and the cost. And then there's also this upgrade that they're going through from proof of work to proof of stake. And, you know, there's a lot of friction along the way uh, and kind of mixed views on whether that'll succeed. You know, there's a couple of other Ethereum competitors out there that are building proof of stake systems from day one that are trying to say they're building, you know, to a, uh, kind of where Ethereum's trying to get to or a better version of what Ethereum's even trying to get to. So with a lot of this, it goes back to like, you know, the storyline matters and the technology matters, but it's a little bit of each of this, right? When you think that it's all experimentation. So, yeah, it really is. And so in, if we're looking at NFTs as a whole, right, one of the most prevalent things that people say, and it's very often said now, but I'm, I really think having conversations as much as possible about this to see if there's still even more depths and more validity to it. So, you know, if you look at anything that has, you know, just so much demand, right? Like there's so much greed, there's so much demand, crazy amount of involvement from new players, right? In the NFT space, um, really crypto at large, I would assume. And so really anytime that's the case, right? Yet there's not as much supply to basically back up the amount of demand. Usually what happens is some quarter course correction, right? Like something usually shifts in some way, shape or form. Do you feel like this is going to be another one of those situations where, you know, the NFT market, which is so hot right now, could potentially in six months, a year, whatever the timeline ends up being, come to some sort of a course correction? Yeah, I mean, I think we've we've seen that. I mean, we've seen it happen a couple of times. You know, one of the interesting things that's happening uh, just overall in the crypto markets and the NFT market as part of it is that kind of the cycles are speeding up in a way. We're seeing very fast corrections. We're seeing very fast rebounds. Um, and you know, it's going to be fascinating to see how it plays out from here, but yeah, I mean, I, I have this view that, and I think a, a number of others share it, that somewhere between 95 and 99% of all NFTs that are being bought today are ultimately worthless. Um, right. now some small percentage of them based on the time frame and storyline and this cultural significance or, you know, their ability to grow in utility over time and bring community together are going to increase in value significantly. Right now, that's not all that different than the way I think of the traditional art world. Right. So again, 90 to 99% of all art that's bought and sold is worthless. Right. The way most art works is, you know, we go to a um, kind of art gallery and you buy some art and you think because you paid a certain amount for it, it sits on your wall. You think it's worth that much. But the point is, after a certain period of time, if you were to try to resell it, maybe if the artist was still relevant or you know something, you might get lucky and get. 30, 50, 70% of what you paid for it, right? Now, if you uh, aren't able to sell it, you end up, you give it to your sibling or you give it to someone else when you move. And again, you think in your mind, you tell them what it's worth, but they're never gonna sell it. And then eventually they put it in their garage or they put it in storage and it sits there, it gets passed to the next generation and, or gets thrown out, right? So again, the majority of all art is fundamentally worthless. Now, at the same time, it's appreciated, it's enjoyed, it's all of that. Right? It supports the artist. It supports just general, like you know, creative movements and all that. What's happening in the NFT space, or at least in terms of digital art, is the same thing. Right now, a lot of it is nonsense, and unfortunately, the same thing with a lot of like meme coins and meme stocks. A lot of people are going to get hurt from it, um, but at the same time, there are going to be certain things that are significant that come out of this period 
You know, we just saw that with um, Artifact, um, uh, which was acquired. And so, you know, there, the, um, the clones that they had been selling all of a sudden started to accrue inch, a lot of significant value because that could end up being one of the more important projects in the space, right? CryptoPunks and Board Ape Yacht Club. You know, some people saw it coming and Board Ape Yacht Club, I think, has now surpassed uh, CryptoPunks in terms of total market cap. Um, so, yeah. And so looking ahead, I mean, I think there's still going to be interesting new, like, kind of NFT projects that are launched, but the vast majority are going to be kind of uh, worthless and insignificant over time. Yeah, for sure. And so I own I own one NFT. And one of the things that I looked at was, you know, can I, for, I guess at the end of the day, it's another version, right, of experimenting at a, at a certain level, right? And so my main thing was I, I almost put the art design itself, you know, on the back burner. I said, is there genuine utility? Like, is there something that could potentially grow into something that could be of use, be of value in some fashion, right? And I feel like that's where a lot of people, and you're noticing that, right, where you say 95 to 90, you know, 99% are ultimately worthless because they have basically zero utility. And to that point, it's interesting as we keep going, because to your point too, you know, I, I really view the, the same trend happening where you're seeing the involvement increase drastically and drastically faster, right? And if you look at, I almost threw that, uh, throw that through the lens of branding as well and through social media, just because that's the world I'm living in right now with, you know, my business. You look at the past 10 years and, you know, it's taken 10 plus years of social media to be around for us to get here. But if you look even the past two years, you know, we've it's been a crazy jump. Right. And like, I think three years from now, we're going to be an even crazier jump. So it's going to keep getting faster and faster. And my point I always make to people that I talk to and, and even through my content is if you can't get your leg up on what like Instagram and TikTok is doing now in three years, when we're in a completely like different landscape, you're going to be in a completely confusing state and there's going to be no help at that point. Right. And like, I think that's probably what's going to happen in the course correction with, you know, NFTs. Yeah. Well, I think that's an important point you brought up. Like if you think about all these social media platforms, right? Like, yeah, every one, two, three years, there's a new platform that's important that comes about and it's much harder right today to go on to Instagram and get to a million followers than just to get to TikTok to get that on TikTok or some newer platform, you know? And so it's, and as you catch the waves of these new platforms emerging. Now, that being said, it doesn't mean that Instagram and Facebook and Twitter have lost their value, right? They still have their niche, right? And that's the same way you could think about the way that these crypto platforms are going to evolve and exist, that each of them may have different groups of people on there. Some people will be traversing and be involved with multiple of them. And some people will be all in and focused on the individual platform. Yep. Couldn't have said it better. I really, I like that standpoint a lot. And so interestingly enough, right, we, we talk about this, right? And, and just as a quick pivot, the idea of the blockchain, I think is important to touch on too, right? I think because that being the bedrock of all of this, right? The idea to understand what that looks like um, at macro is really important, especially as we continue to evolve. And one of the things I, I watched an interview that you had done, um, I forget the exact uh, place you're at, but basically the interviewer had asked you the question about the idea of, you know, there's going to be multiple blockchains. You know, and the example of metaphor, and I'll let you speak to this, but, you know, just in general was the idea, like, you know, there's multiple different messaging platforms that people use, like Messenger, or WhatsApp, whatever, you know, across regions and like the blockchain might emulate that. I was wondering if you could speak to that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess even now there's so, there's multiple different metaphors we could take it, right? Whether we're talking about new social media platforms that are launching or how different countries have, you know, there's a couple hundred currencies that exist in the world, right? And that there's different messaging platforms and there's no, you know, despite all these attempts to get people to 
you know, cross, uh, like to interact across different platforms, the individual ones still exist, right? So, you know, there's iMessage, there's WhatsApp, there's Kakao, WeChat, you know, there's ones that are more popular in certain countries. There's ones that are more popular based on certain types of operating systems, right? And, and I guess that, that's a good way to think about it in that like, you know, there's all these different niches that are gonna exist. There'll be bridges between them so that, you know, somebody who's using an iPhone, when they send an iMessage or what, you know, the same way that they're texting everybody else, they can send a text to somebody who's using Android, right? Now it doesn't exist yet. So there they have a cross chain interoperability. When, if you're using WeChat, right? You can't send a message to somebody on iMessage. You can't send a message to somebody online in Japan. And so, you know, there's, there's certain systems that are a little bit more closed off. Now, it doesn't mean that those systems don't have incredible value. They might have other features. In fact, you know, when you look at WeChat, WeChat is potentially, and, and Kakao and Korea, those are potentially, they have the most functionality of any messaging system, right? So they have increased functionality, but less interoperability. So it starts to like kind of have a very similar, interesting overlap to the way a lot of crypto platforms work today. And so that's where you kind of feel the blockchain is going to end up becoming, where there's going to be multiple different ones, just a matter of figuring out which has more function for what your purpose is. Yeah, I mean, I think it, exactly that. But some of them, like even right now, we're, we're seeing, you know, from a lot of the major crypto platforms, certain ones have had a more significant presence in different countries, right? And so, you know, Polygon and Matic is, you know, has a huge presence in India, for example. And so there's, that's the base, and then they're building out from there. And now there's expanded and have a lot of presence in the Middle East as well. And so this now, the interesting thing here that's at play, and, and one of the most fascinating things to watch, is that the same way that, you know, I described crypto as being the most meritocratic game the world's ever seen for people to get involved with it. It's also one of the most like interesting, fascinating for countries and companies to compete. So that, you know, more than ever before in history, any one country by opening their doors and by embracing innovation or, you know, putting more lax uh, tax laws or regulation can attract individuals and companies and platforms to migrate a lot of their usage to that country. Right. So, you know, we're all, I could see it over the next couple of years, you know, they're definitely being significant, you know, and politicians realizing this and really, really fighting to attract a lot more um, of the crypto platforms to participate in their countries. That makes a ton of sense. And so based on the company's perspective, right, do you kind of see this also as a player in things like fundraising? Because I know that I've, there's, a, I know a little bit about you know, the idea of using crypto as a foundation for fundraising. Have you seen anything in your doings or, or kind of see that as another ever growing basically field? I mean, completely. So in the last cycle, it was through, you know, what were called ICOs. Now, even the NFT launches are essentially, you know, uh, just a novel way to fundraise. And then people are, some of them are just running away with the money and some of them are trying to build out businesses and communities around it. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, the, uh, what's fascinating too is that, like this is a, a good example that, look, the US, because of some of the onerous regulations here, a lot of the newer projects restrict investors from the US and North Korea, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, with a couple other jurisdictions along the way, but the point is uh, Americans are actually at a disadvantage now um, to participate in a lot of the new innovation that's coming. Mm. Really interesting. And so, I love your point too, when you say like an NFT project is basically just a fundraising, right? And I know a ton of examples of different projects that I follow where, you know, to your point, they're basically, you know, everybody's, they're selling out the project, you know, 
right at launch. They got this big lump sum of money. And like you said, a lot of people can just run away with the money or some, especially the ones that I'm following, a lot of times what they're doing is they're taking that liquid money that they, not necessarily liquid, but they have it now to use. And now they're building out, you know, another business or even, even more interestingly, they're just building out more growth to further expand the value of the project itself, but then resell value, which is really interesting because then you look at your holders of the, of the project and you're trying to build it out for them, which obviously in, in essence, build it out for you too. And you have this big essence of community again, which is so, just a keep reassuring, you know, term that keeps coming back in this space. And I love that outlook. You know what I mean? Like to keep doing that. One, one important point, I, I kind of am teaching a, a handful of friends that, I, that have gotten excited about the NFT space, just that it's something important to learn about markets, right? Is that people will look at, they'll, they'll buy into an NFT project and they'll buy it at, let's just simplify and say it's at 0.1 ether for a couple hundred dollars, then they'll see the floor of the project is one ether, mm -hmm. right? And so they'll think if they bought, you know, 10 of them, that all of a sudden that they turn one ether into 10 ether because the floor price, the lowest one being offered for sale is that one ether price, okay? Now, what I explain to people is just because nobody else is listing it there, it doesn't mean that there's actual demand to buy all of the uh, NFTs of that kind at that price, right? That if everybody were to try to sell, it might be worth 0.1, the original price or even less because yeah. it doesn't work. If, if everybody, if no one is selling and you have more and more people coming in and interested to buy into the project, right? Then it's worth the floor or worth more than the floor. But if nobody is selling because everyone just thinks they have this theoretical value, right? Then it's not real and it's all phantom, you know, gains. And so, you know, it's where I try to tell people is like, even when they see that, if they think that they, you know, I, I really try to encourage like that when the prices are rising is the time where they want to be selling into it. Um, and so selling into kind of the demand and the hype and not, not get too caught up with how much they think they've made on it. So interesting. That's a good lesson to, to learn. I bet you a lot of people fall into that trap, right? Because at, at essence, you're just looking at a facade of numbers and you want to almost rationalize what you want to believe. You know, so even if the map itself doesn't work out, you still want to believe that. And, and that's because none of it's really tangible and it's all looking at a screen, you can very easily fall into that, I'm assuming. Right. Cool. Well, listen, so... If I just want to end it off with this, is there anything that we haven't touched on yet that maybe you've talked to somebody you had a conversation with that you think is important for people who are listening? And this could be at large, you could take this any direction you want, but I just wanted to provide as much value to everybody listening um, in, in any direction. So anything that you would say that you'd want to kind of end this off with? Oh, perfect. So I, I think, you know, the, the biggest topic and what could actually be the most important thing of this year that we haven't touched on yet is DAOs. So decentralized mm -hmm. autonomous organizations. And uh, a close friend of mine, another guy who I convinced to move down to Puerto Rico, his name is David Johnston. He wrote the original uh, white paper on DAPs, decentralized applications. And he had this concept that uh, he put out a term called Johnston's Law, which is everything that can be decentralized will be decentralized. Um, I put my own iteration on it and in, in Japan, I called it Namudaro's Law, which is anything that should be decentralized will be decentralized. Okay. So now with DAOs, you know, as we start to think about like, it's kind of the early forms of experimentation that we saw with Bitcoin and Ethereum and a lot of the other earliest projects, we're seeing experimentation on what it's like to have shared group or community ownership over a platform or a project or a fund or a lot of different things. And so, you know, I think really like it's what I'm encouraging people to kind of dive into most and learn about because 
right now it's still very hard to understand, hard to see the benefit of it. But what's going to end up happening is it's really going to drive like much more engaged ownership over different things. And for people who you know get involved with a community or a project early to accrue the value that they kind of create from being on that platform. Um, so really, when I think about you know going back to these uh, like social media networks and Twitters and Facebooks and you know Instagram and TikTok, in that the people who get involved early and help create the the value there. Right, aren't really benefiting from it. So, it, you know, hopefully in the future, if there's a lot of DAO-like mechanisms, we'll see the earliest participants and users actually benefit along the way. So interesting. Yeah, something I really want to look into personally more is that is DAOs. I think there's a lot of validity there, and I think it's 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 almost like the next. I don't want to use the term frontier because it's not, but it's that next big thing that people are going to once they grasp the foundational concepts, they're going to start realizing there's a lot more involved. So that'll be interesting. All right, well, listen, David, um, amazing conversation. I think there's so many people have probably learned so many things. I personally learned a lot just from the way you articulated it. So I genuinely appreciate that. Um, and I'd love to obviously stay connected. Before we let you go, you know, any particular, you know, channels or any way that people can get in contact with you that you want to plug in, that'd be great. Um, yeah, I, I think my Instagram, David J. Namdar, my Twitter's at Namdar, um, and then people can feel free to add me on LinkedIn as well. Awesome. And we'll put all that on an end screen and we'll put it in the description on YouTube as well. But everybody listening, hopefully you got that. Um, listen, David, I genuinely appreciate you for hopping, you know, taking the time and being on the show today. Um, thank you so much. Yeah, of course. You're welcome. It's been great chatting. Absolutely. Have a good one. Took a shot in the dark to make my own lane. I think that I'm better go my own way. So I didn't. Now I'm on my own. Yeah, I'm on my way. Keep my head up till I find my place. Yeah, I'm on my way.